You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open your Bibles this afternoon to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be considering this afternoon the article in the Apostles' Creed about the resurrection of the body. And it's in that connection then that we read 1 Corinthians 15, well-known passage which speaks about the resurrection of the body on the last day. So 1 Corinthians 15 then, beginning at verse 35. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come into life until it dies, unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed. Perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. The splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind. And the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And stars differ differ from star and splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. Is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our text this afternoon is the word of God as it's summarized and confessed. Lord's Day 22 of the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 57. Making our way one article at a time through the Apostles' Creed, 
And now we come to the article about the resurrection of the body. In Lord's Day 22, question answer 57. What comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? Not only shall my soul, after this life, immediately be taken up to Christ my head, but also this my flesh, raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as we come to the article about the resurrection of the body this afternoon, we should be very clear about what is the resurrection. We take all the passages in Scripture that speak about the resurrection of the body, and we can summarize it like this. It's an event future event that will happen on the day of judgment, as the scriptures teach us. On that day, by his almighty power, God will raise up the dead from the grave. All those who have died will be raised up, while those who are alive at that time will be changed. And what Paul says in a, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, very quickly, their bodies will be changed. It will happen by the power of God. That same power of God that was manifest in His creation and in His forming man from the dust will be shown once again, when he unites the spirit or the soul of all people together with their body. Yes, their body. Their body yet different. So the scriptures also teach us. It's a body that's theirs, yet it's incomprehensibly changed. Just like the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was changed after his resurrection from the dead. That, in short, is the resurrection. The resurrection of the body. And that's what we confess in this article about the resurrection of the body. When we confess the resurrection, we are anticipating a future work of God. A future work of the Almighty God. And that's what we consider this afternoon. That future work of the Almighty God. And when we confess this future work, we are adoring God's power. We are praising and entrusting ourselves to His power. We are also believing the promise of God that that future work will happen. Because God has promised it. He's not only promised it, He's also given us a guarantee, which we'll speak about. And finally, when we anticipate that future work, then we, we commit ourselves to living by that truth now, day by day. That is, yes, the resurrection of the body is something that happens in the future, but it affects us now. It affects how we think and how we live and how we serve God. And so we consider this afternoon the resurrection of the dead. 
So when we confess the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body, we adore the power of God. Because it is the power of God that makes this resurrection happen. We confess God's power to completely and comprehensively save us. That That's the power that we're speaking of in the resurrection. A power to completely and comprehensively save us. Now, what do you mean, you might be asking, what do you mean by completely and comprehensively save us? And what does that have to do with the resurrection? I thought we were already, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we're already completely and comprehensively saved. So what more do we need to know? Well, to consider what we mean by completely and comprehensively, we'll take a step back and look at the big picture of what's going on in salvation. If you look in in the Bible, in God's Word, then you know that the Old Testament speaks about this salvation that's coming. The whole Old Testament looks forward and anticipates this great salvation that's going to come. And that salvation comes, we know, in the form of that baby. Born to Mary and Joseph. Jesus Christ. It comes through His life and His death and His resurrection. They look forward to that salvation, though, in the Old Testament And they look forward to all sorts of different aspects of of that salvation that would begin with Jesus Christ, with his birth, but would also include the resurrection of the body. The Old Testament prophets, psalmists, look forward to the resurrection of the body as a part of the salvation that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would bring. Well, Jesus Christ, according to the scripture, did come to this earth. He was born. He grew up. When he was around 30 years old, he began his ministry. And he preached a message of forgiveness. And he did miracles that showed his power. And and that had people draw their attention to him. And he showed them that he was the Savior. And by those miracles, he showed them that he had the power and the authority to save. And he demonstrated for them what what that power looked like. Like, what does salvation look like? He said to some, your sins are forgiven. And to others, he healed their sicknesses. To others, he raised them from the dead. And so he showed what salvation looked like. All those different aspects are part of the salvation that Jesus Christ came to this earth to bring. And he declared to all of them, come to me. Come to me and you too will be saved. But have you ever wondered what happened to those people who were healed? What happened to those people who were raised from the dead? What happened to Lazarus? He was miraculously raised from the dead by Jesus Christ. But what happened to him after that? Well, we don't really know because we're not told. But we do know what happened to Lazarus. And we know what happened to all those who whose diseases were healed by Jesus. 
They very well may have become sick again at some point in their life. And they all die. God demonstrated his power to save in them and with them. But even they eventually succumbed to sickness and to death. And so Christ's work was not complete even when he raised them from the dead, even when he healed their diseases. Yet there was an immediate effect of Christ's work. Through faith in him, their sins were forgiven. Through faith in him, their lives were changed. That is the beginning of salvation. When your sins are forgiven and you are restored to God, that is the beginning of a salvation that will continue. Through faith in him, they were saved. Although that dark world that Jesus came to rejected, and that rejected Jesus continued to look a lot the same after he left. People were still doing the same things. There was still a lot of sin and brokenness in the world. Yet in the midst of that world, as a result of Jesus' work, there was new life. There was spiritual life. A life and a glory that, that's not seeable or touchable, but undoubtedly real and powerful and indestructible. That is what took root in the lives of all those who believed in Jesus Christ. That indestructible life was there, began to grow. And yet even for them, their bodies would give way to sickness, to age. And yes, even to death. But their souls would forever live before the face of God. That is the beginning of the salvation that Jesus Christ accomplished through his death on the cross and his resurrection. But that is not the end of the salvation that he brought. That is not the completion Paul says that creation even now continues to groan, waiting to be released from its bondage and decay. Believers now, although that imperishable life is within them, they still groan under the sufferings of this life, under sickness and death and mourning and sadness. Do you do you see that bondage to decay around you? Do you experience that that breakdown? of body within you. It's there. It's all around us. We experience it every day. But one day, and this is what the resurrection of the body guarantees us, teaches us, one day there will be no more decay. One day there will be no more brokenness. One day there will be no more sickness. One day there will be no more death. One day, in the day, in the completion of Christ's work, on God's day of salvation, all of creation will be revitalized. The resurrection of the dead stands at the center of that time. When death be cast away, we will live. Forever. No sin, no death, and no brokenness. In the flesh. In the body. Before the face of God.
So the resurrection points us to the next step in God, God's redemptive plan. When our salvation, body and spirit, the united whole that God has made us, will be completely redeemed and restored by God's power. So we see God's power to comprehensively and completely save us, but we also see another aspect of God's power in the resurrection of the dead. And that is that we also see God's power to entirely and eternally destroy sin. Because the truth of the resurrection is that not only will believers be raised up on the last day, but all people will arise to face judgment before the great judge of all the earth, Jesus Christ. And those who entrusted themselves to Jesus Christ for their salvation, who are united with him by faith, they will go on from there to live forever, having been justified through his blood. But those who reject God and the salvation that he's given in Jesus Christ, those who lived in rebellion and self-sufficiency, who thought they did not need his salvation, or who rebelled against it, will be punished, scriptures teach, body and soul in hell forever and ever. God will entirely and eternally punish sin by his power. Now, how do we know that this power of God exists. We know it because God has already shown us His resurrecting power, hasn't He? God has already shown us His resurrecting power when He raised Jesus Christ up from the grave. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of our resurrection. He rose, and, and just as when you have the harvest, The first part of the harvest comes in, and that's a guarantee that the rest of the harvest will continue. So with Jesus Christ, because he was raised up from the grave, so too are we guaranteed that we will be raised up from the grave. Just as Jesus died and rose again, so too will all those who die in Christ, who trust in his saving power, who are united to him by faith, be raised up again. To live with Him eternally. When we confess the resurrection of the dead, we are focused upon God's saving power. And what a power it is. There's more. When we confess the resurrection of the dead, we also believe the promises of God. Because we are speaking about a future event, aren't we? And so we're speaking of the promises of God that are not yet realized for us entirely. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul compares the resurrection to a seed. A seed that you plant in the ground. And when you plant a seed, you don't plant the whole plant. That's what Paul says. You plant a seed. You don't see what it's going to be, but you know what it's going to be. You know what that seed will become. So it is with the resurrection. And the promises are are wrapped up in that seed that is buried in the ground. Those promises are not yet realized for us. 
But yet we know that just as a seed will germinate and grow, so too will those promises that God has given us about the resurrection become real for us. And as you go through Scripture, if you were to to look at the passages that speak about the resurrection, and I'll speak about some now, you notice that a lot of them are given in the context of suffering, in the context of difficulty. That's where those promises are given. That believers might hang on to those promises in the midst of their trials. You can think of Job. Job chapter 19, the well-known confession of Job that he will stand after his flesh has been destroyed. He will stand on the earth in his flesh and see with his own eyes that his Redeemer lives. Well, what's the context in which Job is saying those words? Job has seemingly lost everything. He's lost his children. He's lost his livelihood. He's, he's lost his comfort in life. He, his skin is even beginning to decay around him. It's an unbearable burden for him. But yet, in the midst of that, Job finds his hope in the God who restores all things. And he confesses that he will one day stand in his own flesh and see his Redeemer on the earth. That's what gives Job his hope in his trial. Deep in the darkness of suffering, he reaches deep into the mystery of God's plan. There, in the resurrection of the body, he finds hope. Or you can think of the prophecy of Daniel at the very end of Daniel's prophecies. After God had shown Daniel many visions of the things that were to come in the future. God spoke to his exiled people through Daniel of the very end. When those who trusted in God would arise from, from the earth to shine with the brightness of heaven, Daniel says in chapter 12, while their captors and their enemies, all those who are wicked, who do not entrust themselves to God, would arise to eternal destruction. Those are words written to a people in exile. A people in bondage. A people away from their home. Suffering there. And God gives them a message about the resurrection. He says that He will, on the last day, win. He will win. They will rise to life. Their enemies will rise to destruction. And the resurrection is the seal of His victory. The Apostle Paul, also in the New Testament, wrote to many Christians in their suffering. Those in Philippi who, who despaired about the progress of the gospel as they saw even, the, even Paul himself being thrown in prison. He wrote to those in Corinth who faced a mix of pressure and temptation from the world and pride and division within. He wrote to those in Thessalonica who faced severe persecutions from both Jews and Gentiles as they sought to be faithful to Jesus Christ. And to all of them, Paul wrote about the resurrection of the dead. And in each case, he said, yes, it's true. We suffer now. We suffer now. But these sufferings serve to unite us to Jesus Christ in his suffering and death. So that we might also be united with him in his resurrection. 
when our bodies are made to be like His, shining with glory and immortality. So Paul gave those believers hope to hang on to. And we could go on. But you notice that all those promises are given to people who know sin and who know brokenness. That God comforts them in their present trial with the truth of the resurrection. So we have the promises of God encapsulated in the resurrection. The promise of complete redemption of body and soul. The promise of eternal glory over against the shame and and the suffering and the weakness that we experience now. Imperishability and immortality over against the sickness and the death that we experience now. The complete victory of Jesus Christ. His complete victory, even though now He is despised and maligned and rejected by this world, He will be vindicated for all to see, standing in the flesh upon the earth on the last day. And all His people, standing with Him, shining with His glory, reflecting like perfect mirrors, His glory to the world. And that, over against the the suffering and the rejection, that our Lord and we along with Him experience now in this world. All these promises have been rolled up in the resurrection, but they've been stamped with a seal, a guarantee that they will come true. The first stamp is the resurrection of Jesus Christ Himself. Because He rose, we too will one day rise with Him. And the second stamp is the Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts. The Holy Spirit, who breathes new life into us, imperishable life, through whom we know, and through whom we do, live forever before the face of God. When we confess the resurrection of the dead, we also submit to the truth of God's Word, and that changes how we live moment by moment. The resurrection of the dead, it challenges our world and it challenges us even now. It's, it was, it has been a challenge and an encouragement for Christians in all ages to live obedient and hopeful lives and it's no different for us today. And so we'll look at just a few of, of these places of challenge and encouragement that, that are, uh, relevant for us today. And the first area is that we are called to, uh, the, the resurrection challenges the materialism that has captivated our culture today. The materialism. Now, what is materialism? Actually, when we use the word materialism, we often speak of two different things. It's like two different kinds of materialism. One, one is, is consumerism, right? Which goes by the creed, more is better. The more stuff I have, the happier I'll be. Consumerism. That's what drives Christmas in a lot of ways for our world. The more stuff I have, the happier I'll be. That's not the kind of materialism that we're speaking about here, although we could. We're talking about, though, philosophical materialism, which lives by the creed, what you see is what you get. What you can experience, what you can taste and see and touch, that's what's real. And nothing else is real. 
This is the system promoted by many of the new atheists, for example, where, where science is the final judge of truth. Because in science, we judge what we can see and touch. Therefore, we know that's true. Science deals with the physical and natural realities. And therefore, according to this idea, it's the, the, the final judge of truth. Well, the confession of the resurrection is entirely incompatible with materialism. Entirely incompatible. First of all, because it includes the confession as the catechism says that not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head. The the reality of the resurrection says that there's more to us than our body. Yes, our body will be raised up on the last day, but there's more to us than just our body. There's also our soul, and they are united as one within us. And our soul will, when we die, immediately go to be with Christ in heaven. Another place that materialists can't reckon with. Second, It's totally at odds with a materialistic worldview because God will cause the dead to raise by his power outside of the normal operation of of life and death that we currently experience. This is the way of the world, right? You live and then you die and then that's the end. But the resurrection says that's not the end because one day our bodies will rise again. And that by the power of God. And finally, because Paul says our body is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. We don't quite understand what that means. We see a picture of it in the person of Jesus Christ. How his body after he rose from the dead was different. We don't quite understand what it means that we be raised a spiritual body. But it teaches us to know that there is more to this world than what we can see and touch and smell and taste. And so the doctrine of the resurrection challenges in a very good way the materialism of our time. And it's also a challenge for us. It reminds us that there are deep realities, even the very nature of our being, of who we are, that is beyond what, what our ability to dig into and to understand in a scientific from a scientific perspective. But it's not beyond what we can know because God has revealed it to us in His Word. So that's the first challenge, the challenge that the resurrection gives to materialism in our day. There's another challenge which is completely different than that on a totally different level. And that is with respect to how we deal with suffering and grief in this life. So it's a big change of gears, maybe a rather sudden one, but Now we go into a totally different area where the resurrection of the body challenges and encourages us. You see, we often, when we speak of the resurrection, it's often in the face of death, isn't it? And and rightfully so. Paul says, sow a dead body into the ground, trusting, trusting that it will be raised up again on the last day. But the resurrection of the body is about more than just the end of life. It's about all of life. You might say particularly about the sufferings and trials that we experience in life. You see, when you go through hardship, it can it can cause you to become somewhat tunnel vision. 
It can cause you, when you're, when you're experiencing pain, for example, to become hyper-focused on, on the pain that you're experiencing. So that's, that's the only thing that's really real to you. Afflictions can, can crowd in around you and make you feel locked in. Can make your horizon very high so you, you, all you can see is the ground in front of you. So that this present suffering is, is all we can think of. And all we can see. The resurrection of the body causes us to lift up our eyes even as we go through pain and affliction. The resurrection of the body on the last day teaches us patience. Our bodies experience trouble and and pain and dysfunction. They don't work the way that they're supposed to. Experience sickness and, of course, the decline of age. But God's redemption is a complete redemption. And God will one day raise our bodies, your bodies, to be like Christ's glorious body in perfection. It's hard to bear chronic pain for two years. It's hard to bear dementia for ten years. It's hard to bear disability for your entire life. Yes, it is hard. But the truth of the gospel is that one day these bodies of ours that are clothed in in weakness and dishonor and mortality will be raised up immortal. They will be raised up in glory. They will be raised up in power, sharing the power and the immortality and the glory of Jesus Christ our Savior. No longer bearing with this present pain, brokenness. And then, on that last day, these present sufferings that we endure, difficult as they are, will only serve to enhance the joy of your salvation and your joy in the complete saving work of Jesus Christ on that day. The resurrection of the body is incredibly encouraging for us. That's why Paul says, after he speaks about the resurrection, he says to the Thessalonians, therefore, brothers, encourage each other with these things. And finally, one more challenge, and that's in the face of apathy, the face of doing nothing. Paul ends his his famous passage on the resurrection of the body with these words, Therefore, dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, we know what will become of our labors. In the service of the Lord. We know how this will end. We know that since Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. Sin and death have been defeated. And therefore we don't lose hope. Therefore we don't lose confidence. Therefore we don't lose focus. We know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. And so God's work will stand forever.
we will stand forever. And so let us give ourselves fully to serving our God in the place and purpose in which he has put us. When we confess the resurrection of the dead, we anticipate the future work of the Almighty God. When on the last day, he raises, he resurrects the dead and gains the final and complete victory. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.